U.S. Arab Radio Network presents Season 3 of the Ray Hanania Radio Show, sponsored by Arab News, the leading English-language newspaper in the Middle East. Each Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern, veteran journalist Ray Hanania explores issues facing Arab Americans on WNZK AM 690 Radio in Detroit and on WDMV AM 700 Radio in Washington, D.C. And now, your host, Ray Hanania. Watch the show live on Arab News Facebook page. And welcome, everybody. I'm Ray Hanania, and uh, this is the Ray Hanania Show. We got two great guests. First, we're going to speak with Tony Bridinger, the Lebanese American professional NASCAR driver who competes in the ARCA Menard Series East and West, driving the number 55 Toyota Camry for Venturini Motorsports and in the Toyota Gazoo Racing GR Cup North America competition. Bridinger has become one of the racing industry's most dominant female competitors, winning more than a dozen victories in the U.S. Auto Western Midget Series, a top 10 finish in the ARCA Menard Series East in four starts, and nine of top of 10 finishes in 35 races on the main ARCA Menard Series circuit. And then we're going to speak with Egyptian-American, Arab-American actor and stand-up comedian Ahmed Ahmed, one of my favorites. He's just phenomenal. I got to see him a few weeks ago uh, do his show. It was just very entertaining. He began his career in Hollywood movies and then expanded to stand-up comedy with the highly successful Access of Evil comedy tour. Ahmed Ahmed's stand-up comedy career opened the door to, for so many other Arab Americans, including myself, to enter the stand-up comedy profession which is today more recognized than it ever has been. But first, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll talk with Tony Bridinger, one of the nation's top female NASCAR drivers. I'm Ray Hanania. We'll be right back right after these messages. ArabNews.com, bringing you breaking news from across the Middle East and the latest on Arabs in America. Get inside the latest headlines with expert analysis and insights at ArabNews.com. Join over 5 million Facebook fans and over 10 million monthly readers. ArabNews.com, news that matters to you. Life for Relief and Development has now been rated as one of the best charities for humanitarian aid. Life's humanitarian projects span the globe, and Life is celebrating its 30th anniversary of providing essential life-saving aid to people and communities in 36 countries, regardless of race, color, religion, or cultural background. Where there is life, there is hope. And when disaster occurs here or around the world, including being one of the first responders to the Turkey-Syria earthquake crisis, Life for Relief and Development rushes in to provide food, medical aid, and shelter to those in need. We are looking to help the earthquake victims, and we take 0% overhead on emergency donations. So please help improve these efforts. Learn more about our involvement to help the helpless and bring hope where it's needed most. And make your tax-deductible donation to Life for Relief and Development now at lifeusa.org or call 248-424-7493. That's 248-424-7493. What's my ETA? Your estimated time of arrival is 9.17. I'm late. I'll have to punch it. 
Speeding will save you just one minute and 36 seconds. It will also increase your risk of a crash, as well as the odds that you will be stopped and issued an expensive speeding ticket. Yeah, but... In one year, there were 22,000 speeding-related crashes in Michigan, resulting in 200 deaths. If I had someone in the car with me, I'd drive slower. But it's just me. This is not a logical response. Though you have no passenger, surrounding cars contain 27 others, including five children and one Labrador retriever. <laughs> How do you know all this stuff? I know everything, Kevin. Your risk of a crash increases with every mile you drive over the speed limit. So slow down. Speed enforcement is happening now. A message from the Michigan Office of Highway Safety Planning. At Top Rehab Physical Therapy Clinic in Dearborn, we provide effective physical therapy sessions in order to limit pain and discomfort. Top Rehab provides physical therapy care for any diagnosis prescribed by a physician, and we regularly see and treat conditions such as stroke, TMJ, fibromyalgia, sciatica, joint pain, and more. We use a variety of pain management methods, including modalities, soft tissue mobilization, and therapeutic exercise. If you're in need of physical rehabilitation or physical physical therapy, get the highest quality health care at Top Rehab. Most insurance is accepted and we're open Monday, Wednesday, and Friday 8 to 6, Tuesday and Thursday 8 to 5, and Saturday 10 till 2. Call for an appointment today at 313-846-0555. That's 313-846-0555. Choose Top Rehab Physical Therapy Clinic on Michigan Avenue in Dearborn. Life's too short to be in pain. And now I want to welcome my guest, uh, Tony Breidinger, uh, just a phenomenal uh, person. Believe it or not, she's a race car driver. You've probably heard of her um, over the last few years. She's really, her name has really kind of surfaced in racing. Tony, welcome to the program. Awesome. Thank you for having me. What, which goal is bigger for you? And I don't know if they're both equal. Is it winning the race or, you know, and again, we're talking to an Arab American audience or being Arab American, achieving something in the U.S. Are they both equal or which is which is most important for you? Yeah, I mean, they both have a lot of meaning for me. I think, um, you know, winning's a little more surface level, whereas, you know, achieving things as an Arab American um, hits a little bit closer to home. So um, they're both great in different ways, for sure. And uh, you're you're in racing as deep as anybody I know, but give give us a little explanation for those people who only see a race every once in a while. It's yeah. far much more complicated than that, isn't it? Tell us the structure, how you compete, and where you're headed. Yeah, so basically, I'm racing um, in NASCAR right now, and there's different levels. In NASCAR, there's basically a ladder system that most people try to follow to get to the Cup Series, which is the top level. Um, so basically, this year, I'm racing in the ARCA Series, which is kind of like the first level of like NASCAR racing. And then the next level past that is the Truck Series, which I just made my debut in that in May. And then after that's Xfinity and then the Cup Series. So there's a few... Um, different steps within the NASCAR ladder system. And then even like prior to that, I started racing in go-karts and there's a bunch of other different forms of motorsports beyond NASCAR. But um, yeah, it's kind of the system that I'm trying to follow. Now we're, we see all these reports around the country where Las Vegas is going to have a NASCAR race in their city. Chicago is going to have a NASCAR race it's become very popular. Is this something where we might see you in racing or are you at that level yet? Uh, 
to compete in those uh, races? Yeah. So a lot of my races, like the truck races or the ARCA races will be like the Friday or the Saturday before the cup races. So a lot of times we compete at like the same tracks. I would say about like half of my races are at those same tracks. Um, so yeah, you definitely can probably so, catch me at a race. <laughs> so we want to have a cheering squad here in Chicago for you. Yeah. I want to make sure that we're going to see it. That's phenomenal. <laughs> and uh, I assume that that's how it would be maybe in Las Vegas and these other cities. Yeah. So Las Vegas, I won't be racing there, but um, for instance, like the race that I just did, um, in Illinois, that was kind of, um, it was, I did like the day before like the cup race. So kind of like, depending on the schedule, I usually post like which races I'm going to and all that kind of stuff. So people can kind of know where to find me. We'll, we'll keep up. And, and by the way, before we go on, what's the best way for people to follow you on Instagram or website where, how, how should they follow you to kind of keep up on your racing competition? Yeah, I would say I'm on pretty much every single social media platform. I have Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. I have a website as well. So all those are pretty up to date. And I'll kind of say, okay, I'm racing this weekend or kind of give people like a heads up on like what my schedule is looking like. And I think the website is TonyBrideDinger.com. Yeah, correct? super easy. Mm -hmm. Okay, we'll keep it simple so they yep. can go to all <laughs> your social media. Does uh, when, as, when you race, does you being Arab American, Lebanese American, does it come up a lot? I mean, are people like they think you're Italian or Hispanic mm -hmm. and then they go, what, you're Arab? Does that come up a lot or is it pretty much, you know, kind of pushed off to the side? Is it significant or not significant? Yeah, I think kind of depends on the person. I feel like I've developed like a very, um, a pretty solid fan base of, you know, Arabs that like come to races. I mean, I've seen like last year, for instance, at one race in Phoenix, um, this little girl, and her family came just to watch me race. So it was really cool to kind of see that I'm bringing kind of like a little bit more of a different fan base in, which has been really exciting and um, really awesome for me to experience. And yeah, I would say um, a lot of people don't really, everyone's like, are you Italian, Hispanic? Like nobody ever really knows. Um, so yeah, I would say it comes up like a good bit, but um, yeah, it's been exciting to kind of bring in a whole different new fan base into NASA. And is, is being a woman rare in the race car industry? I mean, you're one of the, I see a couple, but you're the one name I see all the time. I would say, I think in my intro, I called you the dominant woman racer in the country. Uh, how yeah, rare is it? It's it's not all that common, especially as you start progressing through the ranks. Um, you know, when I started in go-karts, I used to race against, you know, a few other girls. And then um, as you kind of like go up through the ranks, I feel like that number dwindles down a little bit. A lot of times I'm the only female racing or there's one or two females in the field out of like 30 plus drivers. Um, so, yeah, there's really not a lot of us. And tell us about some of the big races, the ones that stand out. Um, you know what and and how you've done is is it difficult or are you rising in you know progressing through the system uh when are you going to be holding up that big nascar cup you know that uh like you know uh uh winning one of the biggest races around and and again i i see all these different races and it's very complicated to keep tabs with all the different ones but um i see your name a lot yeah, so I would say kind of the biggest um, thing that I've done lately was back in May um, during my truck series debut, I finished 15th, which I actually made history doing that by becoming the um, highest finishing female, like making her debut. Wow. So um, that was pretty exciting. And that was definitely, I feel like helped me take, that was kind of like a big moment and kind of 
not really like a make or break moment, but I was on this big stage of people watching, you know, going up to the next level and everyone's trying to see like, how is she going to do? Um, so I feel like that kind of helped me. Like that was like a positive direction that I went in and I'm hoping to kind of keep progressing, but I would say my five-year plan kind of consists of getting to the cup series. So I still have a little ways to go, but I feel like I've been making good gains at it. And uh, obviously it's a male dominated uh, sport, but Mm -hmm. uh, do they treat you as an equal when you're racing or do you have to kind of prove yourself all the time? I would say it depends on the driver. I think, you know, some drivers even subconsciously like drive the woman a little bit harder, not really like a little bit more aggressive. um, But like I say, for me, when I'm in the seat, I see everyone as a driver and I don't identify people by who they are. There's a driver that's ahead of me. So I'm trying to beat them. So I don't see people as any different. I really don't think about, oh, is this driver going to see me as any different? But I do feel like some do for sure. And I know that, uh, you know, reading through your bio and everything and some of the stories about you that your father thought it was going to be just a phase you were going to go yeah. through. I'm sure he's accepted now, what is 14 years later? that this is definitely what my daughter, Tony, is going to do. Have they accepted it? Has the family accepted the idea that you are going to be a race car driver from now until whenever? Yeah, definitely. I think I think definitely from like the past couple of years, I've progressed more in my career to where um, it's becoming a little more real for them, especially my dad. Um, he's always been pretty realistic and um, definitely didn't really see myself going as far as I have. But now that I have gotten here, um, he's definitely very supportive. And my mom's always been my biggest cheerleader. So yeah, I definitely think they're supportive of it now. And, um, you know, I've come this far. So we see how much further I can go. You have, uh, have there been any scary moments in driving? I mean, you know, it's not the, I mean, it's risky a little bit. And, um, you know, has there ever been a moment when you thought, wow, this is uh, dangerous? Kind of, I'm never scared when I'm in the seat driving myself. I mean, if I'm, you know, getting in a wreck, usually it's, I have like more concern for my car and my truck rather than myself because I want to just get back out there and race. And usually if you do wreck, you're not going to get back out. You're kind of like retired for the race at that point, just because the speeds you're going at. And if you hit a wall, um, you know, the odds are against you. Uh, But yeah, I would say definitely like this year I had a pretty hard hit that, you know, when that happens, it kind of like rocks you a little bit in the moment, but never kind of deterred me from uh, pursuing this. So, yeah. And how many cars do you race? Do you have a lot of cars that you identify with or race with? How many do you have? Or are these cars? Tell us the whole structure. I mean, do they have to be sponsored or do you have your own collection of cars? Explain that to us a little bit. Yeah. So I'll try to make this a little simple. It's a little complicated, but basically I drive for a team. Um, a couple of the teams that I drive for are Venturini Motorsports and Tricon. So they basically, it's kind of more like they have the trucks or the cars and then I go and race and I have to bring sponsors to be able to do that. So it's kind of a simple way of putting it. And then the team has a bunch of cars or trucks just in case, you know, if you do get in a wreck, they have like a backup. So they're equipped with a bunch of cars and trucks and um, they always have more. And depending how many races you're doing will depend kind of how many trucks or cars you're using. But um, yeah, it's definitely a process. Well, and I know being a woman in a high profile sports puts you out there and um, and it's easy to embrace things like Victoria's Secret as a racing sponsor. I assume they're a sponsor, correct? They are, yes. And and you're a model also? 
Yeah, I've done a little wow. bit with them, which has been super exciting for me. Did this bring uh, Victoria's Secret into the racing industry? Because I just don't yeah. see Victoria's Secret getting there sooner before you got there. Yeah, some no, of the this guys. Is, yeah, we definitely brought them into NASCAR, which has been really exciting that they kind of um, embraced me into their family and are willing to really support me. And how many different sponsors uh, that, that uh, back you? You must have a lot of them. All those stickers and the cars represent yeah. the. And again, as you point out, it's a team of a couple drivers, and they have all these different cars that you race. You got a lot. Who are some of your big sponsors? Yeah, so I'd say you know um, this coming weekend I have Raising Canes on the car, which is um, they just kind of joined us on board. I have Hot Wheels, which I have a Hot Wheels car that everyone always gets really excited about. Looks super cool. Victoria's Secret's a big one. Rootly has been really supportive. So I have so many great brands that have supported me and really. Um, you know, embrace my journey and want to kind of uplift me through the NASCAR ladder system, which has been really great. But yeah, anytime you see any logos on my car, um, that's people that are supporting me. Those are all different sponsors. Mm -hmm. And when you look back at the past several years, uh, what's been the biggest, most exciting moment for your career, do you think? Definitely my truck debut. I dreamed of that ever since I was little. And that was a really big step for me in my career to be making that. Um, so I say it's been my biggest moment so far. Tell us what, if, do you mind explaining what the truck debut means? I mean, do you yeah. actually drive a truck or? It is actually a truck. Yeah. What kind it of doesn't. Truck? So it is. Big F450s <laughs> that you see on uh, Yellowstone that they drive around. So it does look like a truck. Uh, my truck is a Toyota Tundra Pro, but it is, it doesn't drive like your normal truck or that you're driving down the highway. They're very aerodynamic and they feel, you know, decently similar to the ARCA cars that I race um they're still like a stock car so they have a very similar kind of like chassis and frame and um very similar characteristics but they're also different because it is a truck and um there's like a big aerodynamic aspect of it which is kind of a learning curve um so yeah not to get too complicated but yeah it is a truck it just doesn't feel like your typical truck and for people that are watching you and others race what is it that they should be watching i mean it's just going around laps but are there key things that insiders might know that average people may not recognize right away? Just a couple tips on how to enjoy the race better Yeah, you know, as someone who watches. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, it's hard to see because I think the easiest thing for people to relate, you know, race cars or motorsports to is themselves driving down the highway, which the cars are not nearly as easy to drive as that. Even when we're going straight, we're moving our hands, you know. Um, for instance, like if you're behind somebody, your truck or your car is going to handle different. If somebody is next to you, that's going to like change how your truck or car reacts. So there's so much going on. Like when people are right next to each other, it changes everything about your truck. If you're in, they call it like clean air or dirty air. So there's a lot going on behind the wheel. And, um, sometimes during races, they'll show in car cameras and you can really see, you know, how much we're working, how much we're moving and, um, what's kind of like a big moment for us, like doesn't really look like that on TV sometimes. So, um, yeah, I feel like just kind of learning about all that little stuff. And I think also the easiest way to get into, you know, watching races is by finding a driver that you like and kind of having somebody root for. I feel like that always makes it a lot more exciting. Is there a significant other out there who isn't intimidated by your tough race car image? Yeah, I mean... I would say I don't have like a significant other, but I do feel like sometimes people do get um, a little bit intimidated by me being like a race car driver, but. <laughs> you you got to be somebody very hard to have a relationship with when you're the better driver. <laughs> and when you're exactly. driving, 
when you're driving down the street and when people pull up next to you and they look at you, do you drive in a car that looks like it's a racing car or what's Um, your everyday go-to car when you're not racing? Yeah. So I don't really have a fancy kind of sports car or anything like that. I have a Toyota Tacoma that I drive, so it's not really, doesn't make me look like a race car driver, but, um, you know, I've driven like a couple nice cars before and it's just not nearly as fun driving on the road versus a track. I'm like, what's the point if you can't really have fun with it and kind of push the car to its limits. And, um, I kind of like a big car. I travel so much, like to be able to throw all my luggage in the back. So yeah. (laughs) And then the final question, um, Again, just remind us some of the things that we should be looking forward to with your races coming up, anything that's on the horizon that we could pay attention to and follow. Yeah, I race pretty much almost every weekend and I post kind of where I'm going and my schedule on my website and on all of my social media. So I always kind of have a race to look forward to. So, yeah. All right, Tony, listen, thank you. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show. This is your second time. You've been so generous Um, to join us and talk to us. And we really appreciate it because it's so unusual. It's so different than politics. um, And it's so nice to see somebody like you doing so well in an industry where you're actually breaking ground. So we're really excited for you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And we're going to take a quick break. uh, And when we come back, we're going to be talking with comedian Ahmed Ahmed. I'm Ray Anania. We'll be right back right after these messages. ArabNews.com, bringing you breaking news from across the Middle East and the latest on Arabs in America. Get inside the latest headlines with expert analysis and insights at ArabNews.com. Join over 5 million Facebook fans and over 10 million monthly readers. ArabNews.com, news that matters to you. Were you recently at the emergency room? urgent care, or at your doctor's office, being told you need a hand, wrist, or elbow specialist? At the Katranji Hand Center, we offer the latest techniques in hand, wrist, and elbow care. From sports injuries to work injuries to everyday hand, wrist, and elbow problems, the specialists at Katranji Hand Center are here to get you back on track. Call us in Troy today at 248-869-4263 or visit us at katranjihandcenter.com to schedule your appointment today. Kashat's Mediterranean Market in Shish Kebab offers a great array of your favorite Mediterranean meals. Meals range from lamb specialties, shawarma sandwiches, and seafood dinners. Plus, they offer big trays of your favorite food and so much more. Kashat's Mediterranean Market in Shish Kebab is located at 32839 Northwestern Highway in Farmington Hills and is open from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. So stop in or call Kashat's today at 248-538-9552. That number again, 248-538-9552. Kashat's Mediterranean Market and Shish Kebab will definitely leave you satisfied. With more than 30,000 successful in vitro fertilizations, IVF Michigan is now ranked as one of America's best fertility clinics according to Newsweek magazine. IVF Michigan fertility centers are the recognized leaders in high quality fertility care. With locations in Bloomfield Hills and nine other cities in Michigan and Ohio, IVF has experts in all aspects of the field. A founding member, American Board Certified Dr. Nicholas Shama, is one of the leading reproductive endocrinologists in Michigan and Ohio. He has performed over 20,000 successful IVF cases and it's helped thousands of couples fulfill their dreams of parenthood. 
When it's time to get personalized care from Dr. Nicholas Shama at one of America's best fertility clinics, call IVF Michigan Fertility Centers in Michigan and Ohio toll-free at 855-952-9600. 855-952-9600. My guest is Ahmed Ahmed, who began his career in Hollywood movies and then expanded to stand-up comedy with the highly successful Access of Evil Comedy Tour. An Egyptian-American, Ahmed Ahmed's career opened the door for so many other Arab Americans to enter stand-up comedy, which is today more recognized than it ever has been. The best way to follow Ahmed Ahmed is on Instagram at Ahmed Ahmed Comedy. Should I call you by your first or your last name? What do you prefer? However it rolls off your tongue. <laughs> Ahmed, tell us a little bit about your uh, family background and uh, you know where they came from. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on your program. I uh, haven't seen you or uh, talked to you in several years, so it's a nice reconnection. Thanks for reaching out and wanting to chat with me. I've been in Guantanamo um, for the last two years, so it's okay. <laughs> uh, I was born in Helwan, Egypt, which is right outside of Cairo. My dad, my mother and father immigrated to the U.S. when I was uh, about one month old. I always tell the story of how my father, he actually got our immigration papers the day I was born. Wow. So he came into the hospital room, you know, we're going to America. It was like one of those Lion King moments. And um, we moved to Riverside, California, right outside of Los Angeles. My dad, uh, you know, he lived the American dream. God rest his soul. He, uh, you know, didn't speak much English. I think he had a few hundred dollars in his pocket. We lived in a like a studio or one bedroom apartment at the time. My mom, my dad, my older sister, myself. He took a job as a gas station attendant, pumping pumping gas at a Shell gas station. I think he was making a dollar seventy five an hour back then. Wow, this was nineteen seventy. And he just outworked everybody and he ended up buying the gas station eventually. Wow. Which is, That's you know, which is very, very typical of a Middle Eastern, you know, Arab, you know, mindset back then. You just work 14, 15 hour days, your hands are greasy, you've got oil all over you. Um, my mom was a stay at home mom. She learned how to speak English from watching soap operas. And we grew up in Riverside, California. Uh, you know, inside my household was a very traditional Egyptian, you know, Arab, Muslim, sort of insulated and isolated uh, environment. And then outside, it was, you know, like middle America. We lived in the suburbs. I had a pretty, relatively pretty normal childhood, you know, elementary school, junior high school, high school. So I grew up very, you know, westernized and very Americanized. I think we were the only Egyptian family in the neighborhood at that time. Um, but but we were kind of, you know, my mom was always cooking stuff with like garlic and cumin and <laughs> cloves. And, you know, so our house smelled like a, just a cultural fantasy going on food wise. I used to always joke around and say people used to think we were like the Munsters or the Adams family. You know, we were the weird family on the block. Uh, um, and so, yeah, I graduated from high school, barely. Um, I was active in high school. I played sports. I was in talent shows. 
I, you know, ran for class president and did did all the cool things you're supposed to do in high school from a social standpoint. I wasn't closed off at all. I was actually very outgoing. And, um, you know, I grew up watching some of my favorite sitcoms back in the day, um, you know, Happy Days. And like you mentioned earlier, Chico and the Man, Three's Company, uh, Everybody Loves Raymond, Roseanne, Home Improvement, uh, Seinfeld, The Cosby Show. Uh, before, you know, Bill Cosby became Bill Cosby. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I grew up watching sitcoms, you know, Good Times. Uh, what's happening? These these were TV shows that were like escapism for me. Yep. Um, growing up in a really strict household and trying to blend into American society. Every night I was watching these sitcoms and I would just laugh my butt off and go, you know what? This is this is cool. And then I started <clears throat> I started going to to movies. Um, and, you know, I think one of the first movies I ever saw as a kid was Rocky. And I remember coming out of the movie theater feeling so inspired and so just full of life. And, and I thought, wow, movies can really move you. And so entertainment is kind of was kind of the direction I wanted to go in because I just enjoyed it so much. Um, the entertainment aspect of it, not not the glitz and the glamour and the Hollywood toxicity. It was, it was more about not even the money, really. It was just more about entertaining people, making people laugh. My dad had a great sense of humor. Um, he'd always crack jokes and he was always the guy at the wedding or the birthday party or the dinners or the funerals, even in the corner, smoking a cigarette, holding, you know, holding court. Um, so I think that's where I maybe got it from. It, that's an Egyptian thing, too, isn't it? The humor. I mean, when we think of humor in the Arab world, it always starts in Egypt. And then you hear about comedy elsewhere, but it could be dangerous in other countries. But in Egypt, <laughs> the number of comedians were just amazing. Yeah, you know, Egypt is is has been and always like will be considered the Hollywood of the Middle East. And we are considered like the, the comedians of the Middle East. Egyptians are very, you know, joyful and gregarious and just love to be expressive and passionate. Um, you know, it's a bit of a pushy culture at times, if you've ever been to Egypt. Um, but it's a very sort of forward thinking uh, culture and society. And uh, yeah, Egyptians just kind of have that, what they say, they call, they say Arabic dem khafif, yeah. which means light-blooded. We're, we're light-blooded culture. So you're on the West Coast, which I think plays into the Hollywood, you know, you're there. That's where movies and you think of sitcoms and, and entertainment coming up from the West Coast. Yet, you know, when I look at movies growing up, watching the movies, there were, I watched all those same. I'm older than you, obviously, but um, I watched all those same TV sitcoms. But there were so many movies where we were always, you know, the bad guy. And I'd be eating dinner yeah. at the table and I'd look around and all my uncles look like the terrorists that I just saw in a scary <laughs> movie. And how does how do you get into that? You know, how do you deal with that when you get into that as a profession? How did you deal? Well, so when I graduated from high school, I moved to Hollywood right away. Um, and I did what every starving, struggling actor does. You get two jobs. I worked as a personal trainer during the day. I was a waiter at night. And then on my off nights, I would take acting classes. <clears throat> I eventually got an agent 
And I started booking small parts. They call them under five, under five lines. So I was doing small, very small bit parts and like soap operas and stuff like that. And then I finally, you know, Hollywood had a good 10 years where they were making movies about, you know, terrorism and stereotypical characters, cab drivers, the sleazy Arab prince or whatever. Very, very, you know, much of a typecasting, stereotypical uh, journey for me. Um, it's funny because, you know, Jack Shaheen, obviously, right? Oh, yeah. God rest his soul. He yeah. he wrote a he wrote a book and made a documentary that he mentioned me in called Real Bad Arabs. Uh, Real yeah. spelled R E E L, and he um, I think he pointed out over twelve hundred movies, TV shows, cartoons, commercials where they depicted Arabs, Middle Easterns, Muslims as like the bad guy. Right, and he he was really kind of on the forefront of trying to dispel those stereotypes and kind of, you know, normalize us and humanize us. Um, and, and you see that, stereo, yeah. you see stereotypes about a lot of other ethnic groups too, but it's usually balanced. You'll get a negative stereotype and a positive stereotype. We seem to just have the, at least the preponderance were negative, weren't they? You didn't well, see it's, it's starting comments. to, yeah. I mean, it's starting to change now recently a little bit. Um, like you mentioned in the, in the African-American culture, the Latino, Hispanic culture, the, the you know, uh, Asian, you'll always see the stereotype, but then they counterbalance it with like, like the doctor, the lawyer, the friend, right. you know, the police officer, um, you know, the dentist, whatever. Um, whereas Arabs and, and, and uh, you know, Middle Eastern people never got that uh, we never got that freedom to, to, to express ourselves in, in the general population as a normal person. Um, so I started for about seven years, I took every role that was coming at me. The right. terrorists and this movie, you know, they were cool projects too. I got to work with Kurt Russell and Halle Berry. And, you know, I was on these big action movies, you know, that took place on a plane or a train or, and I was always the bad guy in the back holding the gun and screaming in the name of Allah and stuff like that. Um, and I started getting a lot of backlash from my own community. I get a lot of, you know, haters from the Arab Muslim world saying, why are you doing this? You're perpetuating the stereotype. Uh, you know, you shouldn't be taking roles like this. But if I don't take this role, they're going to give it to a Samoan guy or a Mexican guy. Right. Um, and so it's funny how people in our culture, they get mad at you for taking these parts but then they're not doing anything about it. Right. So I would I would write scripts about a mainstream family who lives in America or a sitcom or whatever. And I would try to pitch it to these, you know, Arab or and or, you know, Muslim investors and say, hey, you know, if you guys want to break this whole stereotypical you know bubble, we need to write and create our own stuff. And they would say, no, 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 that's not up to us. Leave it. You know, that's Hollywood. And. We want to, you know, where we invest in gas stations and strip malls and that kind of thing. They don't, the Middle Eastern community, the, the Arab Muslim community at that time and still to this day didn't really understand that you can make an independent movie for, for the amount of money some of these Arabs have, you know, they, they spend on a shopping spree with their wives. Right. You, you can make four or five movies with that, wow. with that budget. Yeah. And, you know, and I think I mean, I, 
And I think you make a good point. I mean, you, when the best way to change something is to do it from the inside, not from right. the outside. So, and so I, they would always, yeah, they would always, they'd always say, well, you know, everybody would always complain about Hollywood. I'm like, Hollywood's never going to write our story. They're just not because a, they don't know it. They're not from the inside. Like you said, we have to write it. We have to produce it. We have to fund it. We have to edit it and promote it and distribute it. And it's all really in house. You know, I, I stopped taking these roles for a while. I haven't worked as an actor since 20, well, technically 2017 was the last thing I did. I played a, I did a, a short film called The Scapegoat, where I play four different characters, which coincidentally was produced and directed by two Saudi filmmakers. Um, but I play this this guy who has voices in his head, so I play all the different voices in my head. Um, so that was a fun piece to just play as an actor. But prior to that, I played every terrorist role you could imagine. I was I was the go-to terrorist, you know, for a while. And at one point, I called my agent and I said, "Can I audition for the friend? Can I audition for the?" Right. Police officer, can I audition for the teacher or whatever? And they'd always say, no, uh, change your name is what they would tell me. Wow. And I said, why? They said, because casting people, you know, Hollywood is in a box and they just see your name. If I didn't, if I said my name was Joe, you know, Smith, they wouldn't know where I was from. But because my name is Ahmed Ahmed, it's a Muslim name. You go right to that Muslim card or Middle East card. And so that was, you know, that was the case. I, so I refused to change my name. I was really stubborn about it. Um, I said, call me if you have anything other than these terrorist roles. The phone stopped ringing. And then I I ran out of money. I, I went back to waiting tables. I started making a lot of money waiting tables because I was making my customers laugh. And I thought, you know what? Why don't I just get the food aspect out of the way and go right to commerce and just do stand-up comedy. Wow. So that's 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 when I had my, you know, my vision, my rotya, my my epiphany that said, go be a comic, keep your name. Um, it's a catchy name. No one's doing it at the time. No one was doing stand-up comedy from the Middle East, right? Um, at least at least in the traditional stand-up form, right? <clears throat> and uh, in the sort of contemporary Western, you know, Americanized form. And so I started doing it. I got lucky and got passed at the world famous comedy store, um, which was owned by Mitzi Shore. Uh, God rest her soul. She took a chance on me and she just loved my voice. And eventually she hired a couple other uh, Middle Eastern uh, American comics, Maz Jobrani, um, this cat, Aaron Cater. And we eventually started a show that she, she called the Arabian Nights. But we later changed it because uh, Iranians are Arabs. And a lot of Iranians were getting upset with Maz. Like, why do you call yourselves Arab? We are not Arab. We are Persian. We had our own empire. So Maz called me up one day and he said, we got to change the name. Iranians are getting really pissed off. I said, sure. So right at the, that time, uh, President Bush was in office and he coined the phrase Axis of Evil. Great. So we, great stole, we, we stole it from him. And we just put comedy tour in the end. So we were called the Axis of Evil Comedy Tour. Nobody saw that coming. I didn't even see it coming. It was great. Um, what's it, that? It was great. I was saying it was great. You And believe me, oh, when thanks. I say this, 
you inspired so many people, um, after, <laughs> especially after September 11th. Um, you know, we're, it was like a competition for Arabs like me and anybody in writing or speaking. We're always joking around. I go, wait a minute, that look what they're doing. We could do the same thing. And yeah, uh, you know, we we got lucky. It was it was really we just had time. We had the, it was great timing. It was, and, and nobody nobody was there to fill the void. And so myself and Maz and a couple of these other comics, you know, we we really did trailblazing. We did we really did. And again, t- tip my hat to Mitzi Shore. She gave us the platform. Yeah, you know, she she would put us up on stage. You know, right with all the other comedy greats. You know. Um, performing at her world famous club and delivering too. Not like she was doing us a favor. Like we all had, you know, funny stuff to talk about and it was close to us. So we could talk about it. We could poke fun at ourselves. We could be self-deprecating. And then that kind of led, you know, we ended up getting our own first ever uh, comedy central special. It was the first ever middle Eastern comedy special on national television that garnered the interest of, um, a promoter that took us on a U.S. tour, and then that took us over to the Middle East eventually, where we were, you know, performing in front of twenty thousand people across, you know, the Middle wow. Eastern, uh, North Africa region: Egypt, Saudi, Dubai, Lebanon, Jordan, Kuwait, uh, Bahrain, um, Qatar. It was a really special time back then. And then from there, that's when the floodgates opened up. Then you started getting guys like. Mo Amer and Rami Youssef and Hassan Minaj and you know the list goes on and on for all these sort of young up and coming comics who didn't have to look over their shoulder anymore. They were like, okay, well, Ahmed and Maz and these guys did it. You know, we can do it. Right. And so um, it was inspiring for them. It was inspiring for me to to watch you know yeah. this this new this new voice kind of come to the to the forefront. And we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue the interview with uh, Egyptian-American comedian Ahmed Ahmed. We'll be right back right after these messages. ArabNews.com, bringing you breaking news from across the Middle East and the latest on Arabs in America. Get inside the latest headlines with expert analysis and insights at ArabNews.com. Join over 5 million Facebook fans and over 10 million monthly readers. ArabNews.com, news that matters to you. Five-year-old Lila and her mom are on their way home from Grandma's, singing Lila's favorite song. A few blocks away, 25-year-old Dylan is visiting friends at a small party. He finishes off his last beer, gets in his truck, and starts for home. Mom and Lila turn onto Maple Street. So does Dylan. Every 50 minutes in the United States, someone dies in a crash involving a driver impaired by alcohol or drugs. If you're impaired and you know it, don't drive. Drive sober. A message from the Michigan Office of Highway Safety Planning. When you're looking for the best in optical care, Dr. Imad Nakash is your doctor to see. With years of experience and thousands of successful procedures performed, you can trust your eyes to Dr. Imad Nakash. 
See Dr. Imad Nakash and his professional staff for your eye care needs. There's two locations to serve you. In Hazel Park, call 248-336-3937. 248-336-3937. In Rochester Hills, call 248-299-3937. That's 248-299-3937. Are you going to start a restaurant or a grocery store soon? Do you need floor plans and designs? Call Naji Abood at 734-744-9796. Do you want to buy kitchen and restaurant equipment at discount prices? Call Naji Abood now, 734-744-9796. New concept products and design, the trademark of kitchen equipment. 5% discount on all purchases of $75,000 or more. New concept products and design. New location, 31185 Schoolcraft in Livonia. Learn more at www.newconceptproducts.com. Call Najee Abood, 734-744-9796. Get ready for an amazing experience at Ishtar Restaurant on 15 Mile Road in Sterling Heights. Enjoy excellent hospitality from owners Ali al-Baghdadi and Fatty Bonham serving the best in Mediterranean food. Try Chef Ali al-Baghdadi's famous shawarma, the best Iraqi grills and food, and the best Arabic and international dishes. Dine in our authentic atmosphere or take out. Call 586-698-2585 or check us out on Facebook. Ishtar Restaurant practices all CD guidelines and is open every day 11 a.m. to 10 p.m. Have an amazing experience today at Ishtar Restaurant, 3625 15 Mile Road, Sterling Heights. And what was cool, I mean, you really kind of, when you look at it, you really did open the door to Rami. He's a very talented guy and Mo Amar, they're both really talented, but you made it possible, I think, in my opinion, to allow <laughs> Tell them it. that. <laughs> well, but the, you know, that's the Arab community. We kind of, we're very narrow focused, unfortunately. But what was interesting about your comedy was it was professional comedy. I mean, I, I always like to say I did some stand-up comedy and the only reason I, I got some notoriety was in Jackie Mason when he discovered I was Palestinian and he got upset. And that created... <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I think I heard, heard something about that. Yeah. I, remember, I remember reading reading but I wasn't really a professional stand-up comedian. I looked at it as an opportunity to make like a political statement. You're a comedian. You're you're not out there to make a political statement other than hey, saying that Arabs are good people. Correct? Or are well, you well, yeah, I mean, look, just just talking, just trying to humanize our culture and and normalize our culture. I don't have to say or do anything political. Just just saying that you're from the Middle East, saying that you're right. Muslim, that's political already. Just by default, we're political. So I never came out. I never did any, like, I never talked about President Bush. I never had one Bush joke, not one. Um, I didn't really criticize the American government. I would make fun of myself, like traveling through airport security and, right. you know, being randomly checked or, um you know, uh, trying to date, you know, in, in America or, you know, my, my immigrant parents, you know, forcing Islam on me. And it was more about my point of view out to the world and how the world perceives me where, you know, as opposed to saying, we're Arabs, you have to listen right. to us and screw America. It, that wasn't my, my point of view. My point of view was more, you know, Eddie Murphy, Richard Pryor, you know, 
self-deprecating, making fun of myself. Because when you make fun of yourself, nobody can make fun of you. you right. You've already beat, you beat them to the punch. Um, that said, you know, I, I grew up watching a lot of stand-up comedy. Um, and I spent, you know, 16 years at the comedy store every night of the week performing sometimes, you know, they have three different rooms. So sometimes you get up three, three times a night. Wow. And then I, and then I'd go down to the laugh factory and go to the improv. And sometimes I wouldn't even perform. I would just sit in the back of the room and watch comedy. Cause I just wanted to learn like the tricks of the trade. Everybody thinks they're funny. Everybody thinks they can get right. up there and do it. It's not that easy. It's, it's, it took me many years to, to hone my craft. I mean, I even, to this day, I've been doing stand-up comedy around the world for almost 30 years. I'm currently in Chicago. I did two shows last night at the Comedy Bar, which is a really cool kind of small, you know, boutique. Like, it's a, I, I consider it an A-list club, but it's small. Probably seats like 150, 200 people. Um, but the first show I did was was fun. Second show, not so great. So you're never, you know, you can't slam dunk every basketball with comedy. You're going to have off nights and that's just the name of the game. And if you can, if you can muscle through those off nights and shrug it off and say, all right, well, put it behind me, learn and then move forward. Um, But I'm still, I'm still learning. I'm still crafting and honing and trying to get my voice, you know, my point of view down. Well, even though I'm older than you, I still look up to you as a comedian. Because <laughs> when it comes to Arab stand-up comedy, believe me, Ahmed, your face is this icon of Arab com- comedy in the United States. Well, I appreciate States. that. And I know thank that you, you said you kind of, thank you, but you you kind of got out of Hollywood movies, went deep into stand-up comedy. Are are you thinking about getting back into it? And is there ever going to be a day, for example, when we have? Like one of those sitcoms, have you been working towards it? Like a everyone, yeah, loves well, Ola or you know, Chico everybody and loves Ahmed and everybody the man. loves Ramadan. Ahmed and the man. <laughs> no, you know, I, I I tried to pitch again. Like I've I've always been ahead of my time. I've always tried to pitch stuff to Hollywood, and they just love to shut you down. Um, the, the game has changed a little bit now. I mean, you know, Rami has his show on Hulu. It's not a sitcom, but, it, you know, it's kind of like a culturally, you know, awkwardly dark comedy. I haven't watched all of the episodes and seasons, but um, I actually auditioned for his show. And and then, you know, you have Mo Ammer, who had his show on Netflix, I think, for a couple seasons. But they're not sitcom. They're single right. camera comedies. So are we ever, you know, going to have a sitcom? I hope. You know, I, I hope that that one of us pops and, you know, gets Hollywood or one of these streaming platforms to greenlight a show. I, you know, do I ever want to get back into acting? Yes. To answer your question in a nutshell. Do I want to audition for stuff and put myself on tape and try to, like, really fight for these parts? No. It's very time consuming. People don't realize, you know, when your agent calls you and says, hey, I have an audition for you. Uh, it's due tomorrow and you have to memorize 10 pages of dialogue and put yourself on tape. And then, you know, it takes hours and hours to do that. Or if you go to the audition in person, you got to drive across town. You got to find parking. You got to wait in a room with 50 other actors who look just like you and are maybe, you know, maybe doing the same thing. And so it's, for me, it's a, it's a bit of a, uh, you know, jumping through too many hoops. So what I did was I'm just focusing on my standup. 
and I'm pulling back and I have technically three, maybe four TV show ideas that I've created. I've written scripts. I have pitch decks. I'm developing. Um, they're not necessarily Arab, Middle Eastern, Muslim oriented right. or based, but, but the main characters are. Um, there's two films that I wrote. Um, one is a kind of a spoof on, um, I don't want to give it away, but it's a kind of a spoof movie on a, uh, a Middle Eastern guy who has a mistaken identity crisis going on. And um, the other one is a romantic comedy. And it's very mainstream. And a friend of mine said, don't write anything that's too, uh, you know, Arab or Muslim oriented. Just write a movie about a guy who happens to be that, but he's right. not, that's not the main focus. And then you'll get middle America and the rest of the world to kind of jump on board mm -hmm. Well, isn't that isn't that what a lot of these comedians like uh, Ray Romano? Everybody loves Raymond. It wasn't mm -hmm. Italian American sitcom. No. The Italian American aspect was there. You don't. Right. And I think I'd love to see, and I hope you're very successful with this because it'd be great to see a mainstream sitcom where the character happens to be an Arab American. It doesn't yeah, have I mean, to be like an Arab focused thing, but just seeing an Arab in a role in a sitcom uh, because comedy is so powerful to get people to change their attitudes. I was on a sitcom for three years called Sullivan and son. Um, that was on TBS. We were, it was uh 2012, 13 and 14. I remember it. Um, Great stuff. And I played, it was uh, from the producer of uh, cheers. Um, Vince Vaughn, who's also a Chicago guy. He was the executive producer alongside with, Peter Billingsley and Steve Byrne, who's a uh, Asian American comedian, he wrote it and produced it. And they wrote a role for me. Uh, my character's name coincidentally was Ahmed. And I played an Egyptian American guy who uh, <clears throat> basically um, was a tow truck driver in his 40s and a hopeless romantic. I remember. Um, and I thought maybe that would spin off into letting me have my own show, and it didn't. Um, but that's not to say that that will never come. I mean, right. for me, my dream job would, would to be on a sick, you know, to be on a sitcom that showcases, you know, my upbringing, my family, you know, my dad is, was God rest his soul. He was quite the character. Um, and he does kind of have that, you know, uh, uh, whatchamacallit. He's, my dad's a cross between like Red Fox from uh Sanford and Son. Right. And oh like, yeah. And um gosh, what was the all in the family? What was his name? Archie Bunker. Archie. My dad was kind of like that guy, a little bit more lighthearted and funny, but you know, he had that old school like immigrant, you know, not that racist, was... but had had like, you know, racial undertones and you know, he was an immigrant from Egypt who didn't speak any English and was very sort of compartmentalized in his own little world. But he was, you know, I, he would be the star of the show. Yeah. And, you I, know, and, and it's very much Sanford and Son. Like, I would be the straight guy. My dad would be the funny guy. I, I would love to see that happen because I, I know people say, well, you do have sitcoms. You got Rami and you got Moammer. And I, not to knock them, I, I love all both their shows, but those are eight season, eight episode seasons. Well, they're it, not sitcoms because there's no live audience. Oh, and interesting. Yeah, they're all single camera. You know, there's funny stuff in there, but but the I guess 
you know, if you can make a live audience laugh in a scripted right. show, right. for me, that's that's comedy gold. Right. And, and that's why shows, if you look at all the successful shows on television, it's funny because when I was on Sullivan and Son, we would do two tapings uh, a day, one in the afternoon, one at night. And once a week, we would shoot every Tuesday. And we had live audience. We, we yeah. had 100, we had two, 200 people wow. in the live audience, studio audience. And I remember people used to, used to comment on my social media or send me like nasty messages saying your show is not funny too bad you got too bad you guys have to use a laugh track i'm like we didn't have a laugh track we those are real those were real people with real laughs yeah ignore that stuff Ahmed. but we also had some of the best actors on the planet on our show we had christine ebersall who's a two-time tony award winning actress we had dan lauria who was the father on wonder years we had uh brian doyle murray who's bill murray's brother uh who he wrote caddyshack like we had some really talented people on our on our show so um you know i wasn't i was number 10 on the on the sun you know the the cast list i i had a very minimal you know role on the show but um no we had live studio audience and i for me you know if i had my cake and can eat it too i would love to be on a sitcom for several years 10 years and and have it be you know, along the lines of like everybody loves Raymond or Sanford and Son, right. Chico and the Man, you know, George Lopez, that kind of, you know, cultural situation comedy where you have this sort of dysfunctional family that's a kind of fish out of water trying to, trying to, you know, uh, be cohesive in, in our Western society. I mean, listen, I would love to have you back on the show another time. This is, you are the king of comedy when it comes to Arab Americans. Uh, Pharaoh, Thanks, we'll man. call you the Pharaoh of comedy. The Pharaoh comedy. Confuse the American public, okay? But <laughs> seriously, you open the door for a lot of people. I owe you my fun, my brief fun venture into comedy to you. Um, you inspired me, and uh, I really hope that you do break that glass ceiling and we see a sitcom where an Arab American is a part of the sitcom doesn't have to be an Arab sitcom, but you just happen to be an Arab American character. I think more Americans would learn about us through that and all the books they can write about the Middle East history. Ahmed Hamid, my guest, uh, uh, Instagram at Ahmed Ahmed Comedy, correct? Yes. And thank you so much for having me on your program. And thank you again for being such, you know, a supporter and, and cheerleader of my career and you know, it's it's refreshing to have people from your own culture really root for you. So, I, you know, I thank you for that. And, of course, I want to thank everybody for joining us here at the Ray Hanania Show, hosted by the U.S. Arab Radio Network and brought to you by our sponsor, Arab News Newspaper at ArabNews.com. I'm Ray Hanania. We will see you again next week, every Wednesday, 5 p.m., right here in Detroit and WNZK AM 690 and in Washington, D.C. on WDMV AM 700. Talk to you later, everybody. Bye-bye.